0: Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 7, 1882-83 vs. England, Ivo Bly and the Holy Grail. During the first day of the 1882 Test at the Oval, it was announced an English side will be departing for Australia to play a series of matches. Another tour was already a desirable prospect due to the potential profits that these tours had brought both the tourists and the host associations, This side was to be led by Ivo Bly, a 23-year-old amateur and the future Earl of Darnley. Bly had already excelled as a cricketer in England and had been part of the side that defeated the 1878 Australian team. However, the events of the Oval had added considerable spice to the contest. Bly had also read the mock obituary that had appeared in the Sporting Times and, playing up to the spectacle, pledged to win back the Ashes from the Australians. Therefore, the series of test matches to be played on this tour will be the first ones where the Ashes were up for grabs. Bly's team was a mixture of amateurs and professional players, a rarity for English touring sites at this point. Lord Harris's had only included two professionals reluctantly in order to carry the bowling duties, whereas Bly would bring four. This number included Dick Barlow and Billy Bates, familiar foes of the Australians who had travelled on the previous tour, whilst Barnes and Morley had test experience in England. The extra bowling support would be key, as previous amateur led sides had lacked the options to challenge the Australian in batting lineups. The remaining eight amateurs included the captain, Bly, and his deputy and wicket keeper, Edmund Talco, both who were uncapped at test level. Steele and Charles Studd had played in the famous oval test, whilst they were joined by Studd's brother George, Walter Reed, Charles Leslie, and George Vernon, who would all be in line to make their debuts. WG Grace again declined to tour, looking to focus on his burgeoning medical practice. The English departed for the colonies a fortnight before the Australian 1882 tour had completed their matches. They stopped in Ceylon, today Sri Lanka, for two games before arriving in Australia. During the journey, Morley suffered broken ribs after a collision with another vessel, whilst Bly had broken his arm during a game aboard the ship. This injury would keep him out of the early tour games, including those against the major colonial sides. Despite the loss of their captain, the English performed well, drawing against South Australia and inflicting heavy defeats on Victoria and New South Wales. These sides were about the players who had toured England, however, as they were engaged in a match against South Australia upon their return from the mother country. The match against New South Wales was notable for the first-class debut of 20-year-old Charles Turner. His undistinguished figures of 1 for 76 didn't hint at the amazing performances he would display later in the decade. Upon arrival in Melbourne in November, Bly declared that his side had come to beard the kangaroo in his den and try to recover those ashes. Three tests had been scheduled, with Adelaide set to host their first test. However, when the South Australian Cricket Association demanded 10% of the gate instead of the 5% offered, their match was moved to Melbourne. The first test was to be held at the MCG over the New Year period. The same 13 players who had gone in the 1882 were the only ones considered for the Australians. Joey Palmer had recovered from his true ending injury, whilst George Bonner had an injured foot and was not expected to play. However, there was surprise when Bonner was selected, with Oval hero Harry Boyle and Sammy Jones missing out. For the English, Morley had not recovered sufficiently to take his place. However, the skipper had. Bly met Murdoch for the toss on the 30th of December, the Australian winning and choosing to bat on what looked like an excellent pitch. Massey and Bannerman continued their opening partnership in front of a large crowd of 15,000, the exploits of the Australians in England bringing anticipation for the game to a fever pitch. When the score had reached 5, the English missed a chance to run out Bannerman. However, Massey was soon out without addition to the score, bringing the captain to the crease. The English put on an excellent display in the field, limiting the partnership and restricting the singles, so much so that the score had only reached 46 by lunch. The two batsmen could not be removed, with the English trying much of their bowling options, including the slow underarm lobs of Reid. Following the resumption of play, the Australians began to pick up the scoring. Murdoch especially attacked the bowling, hitting several brilliant boundaries. This forced Bly to turn to his seventh bowler of the innings in Charles Leslie. He was of faster pace than his teammates, and at first, Murdoch seemed to enjoy the speed. However, Leslie soon drew him into a false stroke, and the Australian captain was clean bowled for 48. Two down for 81 soon became three down as Leslie got Horan to edge one to slip for a duck. After a 15-run partnership with the new man, McDonnell, Bannerman was finally compelled into a mistake, with Leslie getting him to leave his crease to be sump for 30, with the score at 96. The new partnership of McDonald and Giffen then went on the attack, tempting the fielders with balls hit in the air, quickly turning over the scoreboard. The English fielding, so good at the start of play, had slipped, with a sumping off Giffen missed, whilst McDonald was dropped by Reid just after the score passed 150. Bates finally dismissed McDonald, clean bowling him for 43. With a score at 5 for 162, big-hitting George Bonner arrived at the crease, ready to put on a show for the crowd. The giant Bonner was happy to hit the ball in the air, which nearly brought his downfall when he was on 7. He skied a ball to Barlow on the boundary who dropped it. Bonner immediately made the English pay by depositing the next ball into the crowd for 5, followed by another the following over. He kept going even after Giffen was dismissed for 36, Stump tried to emulate his partner's play. The wicketkeeper Blackham was now witnessed as Bonner put another 2 into the crowd, either side of being dropped again, this time by Reid. One of these shots was only stopped from being hit out of the ground by a tree, costing Bonner the first six in test cricket. As the shadows lengthened, Bonner brought up his 50, whilst just before the close of play, Blackham was dismissed for a smartly made 25. Bonner ended the day undefeated at 60, with the Australians well placed at 7 for 258. The Sunday rest day saw showers hit the uncovered pitch. The weather hadn't improved Monday morning, but the sun was out by the time play recommenced, the drying pitch being more difficult for batting. Despite the rain, 20,000 people packed into the ground, hopeful of more fireworks from Bonner. He didn't offer another opportunity for a crowd catch, but he would take his score on to 85 before he was the last out, caught in the slips. The Australians had made a score of 291, but given the nature of the pitch, it was likely this would be a difficult challenge for the English to meet. and Palmer would open the bowling, whilst the English captain would open the batting with Barlow. Bly's lack of match practice would show, as he was soon bowled by Palmer for a duck. His replacement, Leslie, would also fall to the same bowler with the score at seven. It had taken half an hour to progress the score that far, with the disciplined bowling and fielding restricting the English in the lead-up to lunch. Following the resumption of play, Charles Studd fell victim to the Demon in what would be his only wicket for the innings. The uneven bounce caused by the drying pitch made scoring difficult, but Steele took the bowling on, hitting multiple boundaries as Spoth tied. Barlow, who had hung on for ten runs as wickets fell, was dragged from his crease by Palmer, with Blackham affecting a smart stumping. 4th of the 36th soon became 5 for 45, as Palmer was once again the wicket-taker, bowling steel for 27. Bates joined Reid at the crease and began to build a partnership. They found Spothath easier to face than Palmer, who was nigh on unplayable, leading to Garrett replacing the Demon. However, the two continued on, bringing up a 50-run stand. They had some luck, with both Spothath and McDonald missing catches, before Palmer managed to get through Reid's defences to claim his 5th in the innings. Bates soon followed with a score on 100. A rain delay brought some respite, but England was still over 150 runs behind with only three wickets in hand. Once the rain cleared, wicketkeeper Tilecoat managed to put on partnerships with George Studden and Barnes to bring some respectability to the scorecard. He top-scored with 33, but with as another Palmer victim. The bowler would end the innings with figures of 7 for 65, what would be his best test figures. The English score of 177 was not enough to avoid the follow-on, which the Australians applied. Tolkien opened with Barlow, and the two took the score to 11 before the close of play. 16,000 people would attend the third and final day, leading to an attendance record of over 50,000 for the match. The two English Openers denied the local supporters more celebrations as they progressed the score through judicious running. Spotheth and Palmer were ineffective, although a couple of close stumping appeals were denied. Murdoch turned to Giffen as the partnership reached 50, who managed to put some restriction on the scoring. The added pressure gave Spotheth more room to attack and responded, forcing false strokes from the two openers that were edged onto the stumps. The English had lost both their openers with 75 on the board, still trailing by 39. From this point, the English could only put together small partnerships, with the Australians chipping away at the wickets column. Charles Studd became Palmer's first victim of the innings, out for 21, while Spotheth claimed the prize wicket of Bly for three. Giffen would achieve his best figures to this point of his career with fourth at 38, whilst Palmer finished the innings with the final two wickets at the end of the match with 10 wickets for 126 runs, by far the standout bowler in the match. The English second innings of 169 left the Australians with a score of 56 to win. Massey was out again early, this time without scoring. However, Bannerman and Murdoch again combined in a good partnership, seeing the Australians home for a comfortable 9-wicket victory. The English would travel for the matches in Tasmania before returning to Melbourne for the second test a fortnight later. Morley would replace Vernon in the English side, although his injury still would restrict his bowling output somewhat. Massey surprisingly kept his place after his poor performance, with Harry Boyle again being left out. The local fans were none too pleased with this decision. Bly had more luck at the toss this time, choosing to bat after calling correctly. Barlow once again opened the batting, this time with Charles Studd, what was considered an excellent pitch for the day. Spotheth and Palmer again had the honours for the Australians. The English started cautiously, but began to open up as they realised the pitch had no demons. Massey did himself no favours with the crowd by allowing a few easy runs with poor fielding. However, Palmer soon struck twice, clean bowling both batsmen for 14. At 2 for 35, Steele joined the number 3 Leslie and the two comfortably took the English to lunch without further loss. The score was 68 and, other than a couple of LBW shouts from Palmer, there was a little suggest the partnership would be broken anytime time soon. Upon resumption, the score moved on quickly, Leslie in particular hitting some powerful boundaries. The 100 was raised with Leslie's half century, but soon after Spothoth had his first impact on the match with a powerful throw catching the English number three short of his crease for a well composed 54. Reid joined Steele at the crease and the two continued to build the English total. The absence of Boyle as a bowling option was hurting the Australian side, as neither Spothothoth nor Garrett looked like providing support to Palmer given the lack of life in the pitch. This was further compounded when Blackham missed to stumping off Reid, a chance a Victorian would usually take. Giffen, however, managed to get Steel to hit a catch to McDonald, which was accepted. This brought Barnes to the crease, and once again, the English were able to build a partnership. The two took the score past 150 and began to play more expansively, although they still kept the ball along the turf. The Australian's feeling was sloppy. A simple run-out chance was not taken, whilst Blackham missed another stumping. Giffen again was a partnership breaker, dismissing Barnes to 32. The score was now 5 for 193. Giffen soon struck twice more, bowling both the English captain and vice-captain for ducks. New Batsman Bates would then hit the South Australian to who failed to complete the catch. This drop would end up being a costly one. Bates combined with the not out Batsman Reid to accelerate the score towards Stumps. Reid managed to bring up his 50 before the close of play, whilst Bates had made the bulk of the runs in the partnership, being 35 not out at Stumps. The English had ended the day on 7 for 248. A gloomier day greeted the players on the Saturday, which suggests the tougher conditions for the Batsman. Reed and Bates showed no sign of the increased difficulty, handling the two best bowlers from the previous day, Given and Palmer with ease. With no signs of a wicket, Palmer swapped ends and managed to tempt Bates into trying to clear the rope soon after bringing up his 50, with Horan somewhat making up for his drop the previous day. Palmer would soon wrap up the innings, having Reed caught and bowled for an excellent 75, the top score of the innings, whilst his dismissal of George Studd would be his fifth for the innings, carrying on his superb form from the previous match. Given had also taken four in the English total of 294. The inability of Spothoth to be a friend on the pitch had contributed to the difficulty the Australians had in breaking partnerships. Massey and Bannerman again opened for the Australians, and the two relived the efforts at the Oval, with Massey providing a dashing knock full of boundaries, hitting two in the first over, whilst the Stonewaller defended grimly. The Unix had only been going for 15 minutes when lunch arrived, yet the Australians were already on 30 runs. Due to illness, Bly was unable to take the field following the break, and Talcott took charge, changing the ends the opening bowlers were operating from. This somewhat slowed the scoring and created pressure on the batsmen, almost leading to Massey being run out. Soon after the 50 partnership was raised, Massey was dismissed, bowled by Barlow with the score at 56. He'd scored 43 runs in 40 minutes with seven boundaries, but the tone he had set was not carried forward by his teammates. Murdoch joined Batman and the scoring rate slowed to a trickle. The bowlers were diligent and the batsmen unwilling to take too many risks. Barlow managed to create a difficult chance off Murdoch, but still put down a catch at point. The partnership had gone on for over an hour when Bates was able to breach the dour defence of Bannerman, bowling him for 14. This opening at 2 for 76 would lead to a steep Australian collapse. Newman Horan drove 3, but was out caught and bowled by Barnes trying to repeat the shot. This brought McDonald's to the crease, but he was out for the same amount as Horan, this time bowled by Bates. The quick fall of wickets only increased, with both Giffin and Bonnet out for Golden Ducks, giving Bates a hat-trick the first by an Englishman in test cricket. Blackham came and went for five. The Australians were now seven for 85, having lost six to nine since the dismissal of Bannerman. Murdoch was resolute and would maintain his wicket throughout. However, Bates continued to weave a web amongst the Australian batsmen and, despite small contributions from Garrett and Palmer, the Australians would end up being bowled out for 114, with Murdoch not out 19. Bates' round arm off breaks had seen him take seven for 28, including the hat-trick, with most of the Australians having no answer for him. Trailing by 180, the home side was asked to follow on. In an effort to get through the end of the day, and hopefully have better batting conditions following the rest day, Murdoch and Batterman, the two most secure batsmen first time around, opened the innings. Murdoch looked to rotate the strike, whilst Bannerman again played the anchor role. Murdoch had taken his score to 17 when Bates finally managed to penetrate his defences, clipping the top of the stunts. Blacken came to the crease, and the two batsmen managed to see the Australians through to Stumps with a score at 1 for 28, still over 150 runs from making the English bat again. Following the rest day, the Australians returned to the crease, and immediately lost Blackham without a run being added, being bowled by Barlow. This brought Bonner to the crease, who perceived to bat in his usual style. He was particularly harsh on Bates, the main wicket-taker in the first innings, hitting him twice into the crowd, forcing Bates to be replaced in the attack. Bonner would hit another shot into the crowd before finally trying one too many times, being caught by Morley on the boundary off Barlow for 34, the dominant partner in his 38-run partnership with Bannerman. The over held up his end well, but with Bonner out of the attack, Bates was able to return and put the squeeze on, finally dismissing Bannerman for 17. Hoare, McDonald, Giffen and Massey would all go on to reach double figures, but couldn't get past 20, meaning wickets were falling regularly. Bates brought up his second five for in the innings where he had Giffen caught at 8 for 132. Garrett was then caught on the boundary, despite the efforts of the crowd to put off the catcher at Barnes, whilst last man spot of hit out before Bates claimed his seventh wicket of the innings. The Australians had been dismissed for 153, 27 short of making the English bat again. It was the first time the Australians had lost a Test match by an innings. The turnaround from the first Test was stark. Bly had managed to return to the field for the final day and had marshalled his play as well, not letting the Australians develop any substantial partnerships. The outstanding player was Bates, with the Yorkshireman finishing the match with figures of 14 for 102, including a hat-trick. This combined with his score of 55 in the first innings, making the first player in Test history to score a half-century and take 10 wickets in a match. There was little time to savour the victory, however, as the two sides had to make their way to Sydney for the deciding test match which was to start only four days later. With the series tied at 1-1, Sydney was buzzing with anticipation regarding the match. Sammy Jones had trained well and was expected he would come to the Australian side along with Boyle in place of Horan and Garrett, but when the coin was tossed on the morning of the 26, both sides were unchanged. The stands were packed to bursting as Bly once again called correctly, choosing to bat on a pitch that was expected to deteriorate across the course of the match. Barlow and Charles Studd would get open the batting for England, whilst Given and Palmer, the two best bowlers from the Australian side in the last test, opened with the ball, with Spotheth relegated to first change. The two batsmen proceeded to score freely, moving their partnership into the 40s. Neither of the opening bowlers could make much headway, so they were changed to Spotheth and Garrett. Garrett, who had been mostly ineffective in the series and was in danger of being dropped, managed to make the first incision, having Studd caught excellently by Blacken for 21. This was followed soon after by Spotheth ripping in a fast Yorker to new batsman Leslie to dismiss him for a duck. Barlow stayed for a while with Steele and took the side to lunch with England on 67. Upon resumption, however, Garrett slipped one through to Steele's defences, followed closely by two wickets for Spotheth, including Barlow for 28. The English were 5 for 75 and in danger of wasting the best batting conditions the match was likely to have. At this point, Talcott joined the crease. The two began to play aggressively, being particularly harsh on Garrett, with Tolkett hitting him for successive boundaries. Given and Palmer returned to the bowling crease when the English score had reached over 100, but had little impact as the score kept ticking over with irregularity. Tolkett especially was scoring freely behind point, whilst Reid took many short singles. Both batsmen each gave a difficult chance before the 100 partnership was brought up but frustrated the bowling so much that Murdoch had to turn to the part-time options of Bannerman and then McDonald to try and create an opening. He was rewarded in McDonald's first over when Talcott turned a ball to leg and set off for a run. Given pounced on the ball and returned it to Blackham, who whipped the bales off before the English batsman could regain his ground. Talcott had made 66 runs and was well applauded by the capacity crowd. The hero of the second test, Bates, then joined Reid at the crease on 6-for-191. The Australian hopes for a quick finish to the innings were not immediately met, as the two put on 30 runs before Reid was finally dismissed, also for 66, caught on the boundary by Massey trying to hit Bannerman into the crowd. Spother then had Bates caught for 17. Following another 20 runs for the ninth wicket, Palmer managed to close the English innings on 247 by taking the final two wickets, Spotheth had demonstrated a return to form with 4-76, but the Australians were to rue the excellent recovery of the English from a low of 5-76. Giffen opened the batting with Bannerman with 20 minutes left of the day's play, with the two seeing them comfortably to stumps at none for 8. Rain would fall overnight and, combined with overcast conditions, this was seen to be a bad sign for Australia's batting hopes. However, these were the sort of conditions that Alec Bannerman would build his reputation on as an Australian cricketer. Alexander Chalmers Bannerman was born on the 21st of March 1854 in Paddington, New South Wales. Younger brother to fellow Test cricketer Charles by three years, he played much differently to his famous sibling. Where Charles was seen as a dasher, little Alec was an occupier of the crease, more often happier to wear bowlers out through obdurate defence than adventurous stroke play. While this often made him the subject of crowd abuse, it also made him an invaluable member of the sides he played in, particularly in support of hitters such as Hugh Massey and George Bonner. Bannerman would make his first class debut for New South Wales in 1876-77 against the Turing English. It was an inauspicious debut, with him only scoring three. However, he was chosen to join his brother on the 1878 tour before making his test debut the following Australian season. He would become a fixture of the early Australian test sides, and his expertise on batting in wet and difficult pitches was about to be put on full display. Despite the poor conditions, 13,000 spectators were on hand to watch the Australian innings resume. Whilst the pitch was at its wettest, the batting would be easiest, so the English found it difficult to make inroads as the Australians played cautiously, only taking the occasional single. Bannerman broke the shackles somewhat with a cut shot for four, whilst two boundaries from Giffen saw the score reach 30. At this point, a change of bowlers brought Bates on, and the drying pitch began to act more spitefully, with some balls spitting up or coming on more quickly to the batsman. Giffen received some luck when Bates failed to take a catch off his own bowling. The two then progressed the to score towards lunch break, hitting more boundaries before the players left the ground to enjoy the refreshments at number 72. Given received a second life soon after lunch, being dropped at mid off. However, he could not take advantage of this as the next over he was stumped off the bowling of Bates to 41. The score was 1 76 as the captain Murdoch came to the crease. The scoring rate once again slowed, with the batsman finding survival difficult on the drying pitch. England, however, did not take their chances, with both Bannerman and Murdoch surviving drops before the score reached 100. Upon the score reaching this milestone, a shower came across the ground. After a half an hour of rainfall, the crowd clamoured for the players to return. Murdoch was willing, however, Bly refused, saying the conditions were still too wet for play. It was not until two hours had passed that the players returned with the English still finding gripping the ball to be difficult. Bannerman took advantage, hitting some strong drives to the boundary, bringing up his 50 in the process. Bannerman was handling the conditions better than Murdoch, which struggled to 17 not out at stumps, whilst the opener was undefeated on 68. The Australians finished the day in a good position of 1 for 133, but still trailing by 114 runs. The rain resumed following stumps and continued all through the Sunday rest day. When play resumed on the Monday, the atmosphere of the crowd belied the conditions, being highly engrossed in the contest. The Reiner made the pitch almost unplayable, and this saw Murdoch dismissed quite soon after the resumption of play, being a judge lead before wicket to the bowling of Steel for 19. That same over, McDonald's clean-bowled for a duck. Horan joined Bannerman with the score at 140, and the two struck up a partnership. Bannerman was handling the conditions well, though, finding the boundaries of regularity, almost as if he was playing on a different pitch to the other batsman. After putting on 36 with Horan and taking his own score to 94, he was finally out, caught a cover point off the bowling of Morley as innings had been an outstanding display of how to handle a wet wicket, and will remain the top score of the match. The crowd, which often mocked his play, cheered loudly as he returned to the pavilion. Bannerman's dismissal brought another flurry of wickets, with Bonner and Massey both falling cheaply. Horan and Blackham combined for a small partnership, but once Horan was dismissed, the end came quickly, with Blackham last out for 27 trying to hit out. From a strong position, Australia had lost 9 wickets to 85 runs over the course of the day, finishing on a score of 218. The English lead of 29 was significant on the wet and drying pitch. Swath opened the bowling with Garrett. The demon made the first breakthrough, bowling Leslie for 8. This brought Barlow in to join Charles Studd, who was batting well. Swathathath was challenging on the wet pitch, but Garrett and then Palmer both failed to make inroads. Swathathath was able to get the breakthrough by bowling Studd for 25, followed by having Steel judge LBW. But Reid then combined with a not out Barlow to frustrate the bowlers. The lack of impact from Garrett and Palmer on a helpful pitch led Murdoch to try the seldom used bowling of Horan. This had almost immediate effect, with Horan dismissing both set batsmen within a few overs of his arrival at the bowling crease. This left the English at a precarious 5 for 92 and provided an opening for Spother to run through the rest of the lineup. The Dean would take a further four wickets, finishing with 7 for 44 for the innings and 11 for the match, a return to his level of form in England on the previous tour. Only the captain, Bly, provided any resistance, being undefeated on 17. The English score of 123 left the Australians with a target of 153, with the Australian Openers blocking out two maidens before stumps were drawn. Day four of the test dawned with the result likely. The English had delayed their travel to Brisbane by a day in an effort to claim victory and, with conditions in their favour, this seemed to be the likely outcome. Morley and Barlow opened the bowling and the pitcher immediately began playing tricks, with Morley getting balls to rise to head height whilst Barlow's belly got above the top of the stumps. This made batting quite difficult and the likelihood of an unplayable ball meant no Australian batsman could ever feel set. The score had only reached 11 before Giffen was bowled, whilst Bannerman, Murdoch and McDonnell were all out by the time the score had reached 18, with McDonald making his second duck of the match. Horan and Massey began to steady with a couple of boundaries, but when Massey failed to respond to the call for a single, Horan ended up being stranded, run out for 8. Massey soon joined him in the pavilion, slicing a ball from Barlow to third man. The Australians were now 6-33, and all hope of victory seemed lost. Blackham continued his good form from the previous innings, managed to score 26 runs, but the rest of the Australians fell cheaply to Barlow, the English bowler finishing the innings with 7 for 40, with best test figures. The Australians went down by 69 runs, having been bowled out for 83 in their second innings. The match had finished so quickly that many people arrived after the game was completed, expecting it to still be in play. Despite the result, the teams mingled after the match, with each toasting the other's health. Bannerman was awarded a prize of 10 guineas for being the best-performed batsman in the match. Bly was celebrated as having reclaimed the ashes of English cricket, fulfilling the aim to redeem English cricket following the loss at the Oval. The English had won the series 2-1. However, due to the popularity of the tourists and the good spirits with which the two teams had kept, Bly proposed another game to be held in Sydney upon his side's return from Queensland, which the Australians accepted. Despite the extra tests, Bly would still claim to have already run the series, with the results of the three prior tests being counted as the overall result. This test is often listed as part of a separate series, even though it occurred in the same summer. This match would also be an experimental one, with each innings occurring on a different pitch, something which wasn't continued post this test. For the third time in a row, Bly won the toss and chose to bat, again with an unchanged 11. The Australians have made three changes, with Midwinter, Boyle and Edwin Evans coming into the side for Massey, Garrett and McDonnell. This was Midwinter's return to the Australian side, having played all four tests for the 1881-82 English touring side. George, given an injury his knee in practice the previous day, but was deemed fit enough to play as a batsman only. The pitch was a slow but true one, meaning the English were expected to put on a good score. Palmer opened the bowling with Midwinter, who was bowling into a heavy breeze. Barlow opened with Charles Studd for the English. An appeal for caught behind off Midwinter's first bowl was denied, but soon after he had Barlow caught at point for two. Midwinter was miserly, but Palmer was easier to score off, leading to him being replaced by Spoth. Yet Studd and new batsman Leslie continued to progress the score count uncomfortably. A further change with ball coming on for the demon finally produced a breakthrough, having Leslie caught at sleep by Bond for 13. At 2 for 37, Steele arrived at the crease. Before he had reached 10 runs, a false shot off Boyle fell narrowly short of Murdoch, whilst Blackham also uncharacteristically missed the stumping off the new batsman, misses that were to prove costly. Following the lunch break, Giffen was unable to return to the field due to his injury, with Bly graciously allowing Sammy Jones to field in his place. After much tight bowling, including a series of six maidens on the trot, the batsman began to open up. Winter, who had bowled unchanged since the commencement of play, was replaced by a Horn, whilst Palmer also returned, but the scoring rate continued to increase, with Steele especially peppering the boundaries. The breakthrough came from batsman error. The start attempted a run which Steele wanted no part of, leading to the opener b stranded short of his ground for 48. The score was now 3 for 110 as Reed joined Steele. In the next over, Steele steered a simple catch to Bonner at slip who dropped it, to the amusement of the crowd. Bonner would redeem himself somewhat by catching the next wicket to fall in read, but not before another 40 runs had been added, most off the bat of Steele. 4 for 150 soon became 6 for 159, as both Talcott and Barnes were bowled. It may have been 7 down soon after, but the umpire denied Boyle's appeal for a return catch off Bates. Another 40 run stand, again dominated by Steele, was brought up by the English before Bates was caught in the boundary. With Bly coming to the wicket, Steele hit a single to bring up the English 200 and his own century, a milestone that was warmly greeted by the 15,000 strong crowd. Bly would hit an attractive 19, a score that would be his highest in the test matches for the tour, before Palmer had him playing around a slower one to be bowled. Steele continued to brought up the English 250 with a boundary. The day would end with George Sud being running out for two on the last ball of the day, with the English on nine for 263. Following the rest the day, the English innings was ended in the first over, with Morley bowled by Palmer for a duck. Steele was undefeated on 135, a high-class knock which included 16-4s, although he had provided the Australians with multiple chances throughout the early part of his innings. The Australians were then able to select a new pitch to commence their innings on. Once this was rolled and ready for play, Bannerman and Bonner headed to the crease, two more contrasting batting styles you would struggle to find. Bannerman started cautiously whilst Bonner was lucky to survive two early chances, being missed by both Steele and Blythe. Surprisingly to the crowd, it was Bannerman who was first out, caught at slip, although the batsman and the home fans both felt the ball had come off his arm. 1 for 31 should have become 2 for 31, but once again Bonner was missed by Steele. The new batsman, Murdoch, didn't last long, clean bowled for a duck, whilst number 4 Horan didn't do much better. Australia was now 3 for 39 and looking in mighty trouble. Giffen was the new man and was clearly hampered by his leg injury that left him unable to bowl or field. However, Bly allowed a runner for him even though his injury had occurred prior to the match, which was appreciated as a magnanimous gesture. More such gestures were forthcoming for Bonner, who was again missed twice, including by Steele for a third time. Giffen managed to get a couple of boundaries away, taking the Australians to lunch at 3 for 58. Following the resumption of play, the Australians began to progress the score more rapidly, with Bonner starting to play with more fluency, though he missed thrice more before the score reached 100. Giffen played a steadier hand, holding down an end and allowing Bonner to take most of the risks. Bonner's 50 and the 50 partnership were brought up in quick succession. A change of bowling to Leslie rattled Giffen, who was nearly stumped before being caught on the boundary for 27. Midwinter arrived at the crease with a score of 4 for 113, and made an even 10 before being bowled by Barlow. This brought the wicked keeper Blackham in to join Bonner, who was now unleashed more of the big shots he was famed for. The score increased quickly to 160 before a catch from Bonner was finally accepted by Barlow, ironically off the bowling with a man who had dropped in three times to that point, Steele. He had made 87, the highest score of his test career to that point. Palmer came and went quickly for a duck, but Blackham found a more, more willing partner in Evans. From 7 for 164, the two would take the score to 220, the Australian wicketkeeper playing classy knock full of powerful cut shots and providing no chances before he was bowled by Bates at 57. Spoffers was dismissed with only one further run added, leaving the last wicket pair of Evans and Boyle at the crease, still training by 42 runs. The two will be able to navigate through to stumps, having reduced the deficit to 15, still a good chance of taking a small lead when play recommenced on day 3. Upon resumption of play, the Australians were able to close the deficit to a solitary run before Barlow was dismissed for boiled for 29, leaving Evans 22 not out. Once again, a new pitch was selected and rolled, but due to overnight rain, it was likely that the pitch would not have been as good for batting as the chosen one in the first innings. Despite this, the English openers Barlow and Charles Studd batted with comfort, taking the score to 43 without loss at lunch. The Australians had missed a run-out chance, and Spoffiff was looking ineffective. A problem of return from lunch, the two openers brought up the 50 partnership before the fourth bowler used Minwit to create a double strike, having Stud caught brilliantly by Murdoch at short leg and then Barlow caught in the slips into his next over. 2 for 55 saw the century maker from the first inning, Steele, join Leslie. The two progressed the score to 77 before Leslie was bowled by a fast Yorker from Horan. Another small partnership took the score to 99 before Spotheth and Palmer combined for three quick wickets, including Steele bowled by Spotheth for 21 to leave the English at 6 for 112. Ivo Bly made 10 before Horan returned to the bowling crease to having well-caught by Murdoch low down. Barnes combined with Bates to put on 41, but when Boyle had Barnes caught and bowled for 20, the end would come quickly, with the English being dismissed for 197, Bates being undefeated on 48. All five Australian bowlers had contributed, with each taking two wickets. This brought a close to the day's play, with the Australians being left with 199 to chase on the final day. Once again, a new pitch was rolled for the final innings of the match. Forecast overnight rain failed to materialise, and 10,000 spectators arrived to witness a conclusion. Bannerman opened with Murdoch this time, and the two took a cautious approach, with Bly placing excellent fields that made scoring difficult. When he was on seven, Bannerman was dropped by the wicketkeeper off the bowling of Bates. The pitch was playing tricks, but the batsman defended grimly. It would take 35 overs before Murdoch would register his first run, and it was Bannerman who surprisingly did most of the scoring. The two managed to navigate their way to lunch with the score at 39. Upon the resumption, a fast-rising ball from Bates caught the edge of Murdoch's back and was caught in the slips for 17. Bonner arrived and tried playing in his usual way, but did not have the same luck as in the first innings, with the first chance he offered being taken. Hall was then immediately out for a duck, leaving the Australians at 3 for 51. Giffen, once again with Murdoch running for him due to his injury, then combined with Bannerman, who was now finding batting more comfortable. The opening batsman set to the bowling, being particularly strong on their drive and bringing up his half-century. As the score reached 107, a bowling change immediately brought about his downfall as he cut Charles Studd's first ball to point, where he was well caught by Bly for 63. The opening for the English was short-lived, however, as Blacken continued his good form from the first innings, combining with Giffen to put on another 55 runs before Giffen was lured from his crease to be summed for 32. Evans was then out for a duck, but Wimbledon would hold up his end well whilst Blacken did the majority of the run scoring to take the Australians to the target score with four wickets in hand. Blackham had finished on 58-not-out and was well applauded for his excellent batting efforts across the two innings. The series had finished at 2-all, which was seen by all as a fair reflection of the quality of the two sides, although Bly still claimed victory overall to their 2-1 lead in the originally scheduled matches. There was talk of a fifth deciding match against the combined Australian side, but the tourists had already confirmed a match against Victoria, scuttling these plans. Following the final tour matches, the English side continued to be toured and faded by the locals. On one such occasion in Rupertswood, Victoria, the host presented Bly with a little urn and a red velvet bag which was said to contain the ashes of English cricket, with which he could return to England with as proof of his success. Bly appreciated the gesture, and also appreciated one of the women who had presented him with it as Florence Murphy, who had taken part in handing over the urn, would later become his wife. The urn would stay as property of the Bly's until Ivo's death in 1929, where it would be handed over to the MCC for display. A sad postscript to this series was the fate of Fred Morley. He had been one of the fastest bowlers in England in his prime, but he had never been able to display these skills on this tour due to the injuries suffered on the boat ride over. Upon his return to England, he only managed to play two first-class games in the next season. He became a recluse, shut up in his home, and would die in September 1884. He had taken over a thousand class wickets at 13 in his career, a sad loss for English cricket. Despite the came in the ashes and bringing it to England, they were not immediately adopted as a trophy between the two sides. It would be another 10 years before a book detailing in the early years of Test Cricket would revive the name as a description of the contest between the two sides. It would take another decade following that before Plum Warner, leader of the 1903-04 side, would explicitly return to the Ashes ideology. It was mainly through his actions and the fact that he titled his book How He Will Recover the Ashes that would enshrine the name as the key focus for Test Battles between the two teams in the 120 years since. This series would also mark a turning point in Australian cricket. Up until this stage, the players had mostly been united by a single purpose, whilst the English were distracted by the county game and the disputes between amateurs and professionals. Up to and including the 1882 tour, in the nine tests played, the Australians had won five and only lost two. However, as disputes between the players and the controlling boards arose, the results of the Australian sides would dip. After this series, the next 19 tests played would only see three won by the Australians, a marked shift in the balance between the two sides. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.